Thank you so much. Hey guys, can we just shower some love on Tony? Is Tony awesome? And do you guys like Juliana? Yes. Juliana? I think you guys were clapping, you couldn't hear it. How about Diamond? You guys like her? Yeah. Let's see, do you like uh, Leo? Oh, okay. Did I miss any salt staff? Timmy! Oh, Timmy! Oh, Timmy! Dang it, why'd I do that? It was like a spur of the moment thing where I was just like, I'm gonna love on you. Where's Timmy at? Timmy, please forgive me. I love you. Uh, okay, hey, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it to Matthew 9. That's where we're gonna be at tonight. Dang it. I forgot Timmy. How did I forget Timmy? <sighs> got distracted by the slider thing, thinking about cheeseburgers. Matthew 9 is where we're going to be at. So, uh, as Tony said, I uh, am from Iowa. I went to the University of Iowa State. My wife and I both went there, Natalie. We have four kids. They are incredible. And we actually just got to spend the entire weekend with the Minneapolis Salt Company down at their fall retreat. And Tony's right. The fall retreat will be lit. You guys need to sign up for that. Uh, but when we showed up to Iowa State, Natalie and I as freshmen in 2012, we were a part of one of two salt companies. So across our nation, there were two salt companies. There was one at Iowa State, and then there was one at the University of Iowa. And that salt company was led by a man named Drew Stevenson. You heard of him? Yes, yes, you've heard of Drew. And that was it. That was all there was for salt companies across our nation 11 years ago. And then in 2013, our sophomore year, uh, Candeo Church in Cedar Falls was planted at the University of Northern Iowa, where we currently are now. So that was started in 2013. And at that point, we began to realize, hey, maybe God is doing something. Maybe God is doing something here in Iowa that he would do across our nation. And so we asked, naturally began to ask, what campus, what city next? And we began to think about the Twin Cities in 2013. In fact, my buddy didn't even know I was coming tonight. He's one of my best friends. His name's Mason Savage. Him and Kira are here at Redemption Church. And Mason texts me tonight. He's like, hey, do you remember? Like, he had no idea I was coming tonight. He goes, do you remember in 2013 when I asked our salt director if there would ever be a church plant in the Twin Cities? But we were dreaming about it 10 years ago, a decade ago. We were dreaming about what if God would do again what he started in Iowa in a place like Minneapolis and St. Paul. What if he would start a ministry that would reach your nine campuses in the U of M, that students would be impacted the same way they were impacted in Iowa. And so we began to pray, not knowing what God would do, when he would do it or anything, but we literally began to pray for this ministry a decade ago. And then in 2017, in May, we came up with a group of people who had said, we're going to go plant this church. I was with Jordan Adams, I was with Kaylee Hunting, who discipled my wife, was in my wedding, and a group of people, and we walked around your guys' cities. We saw your campuses, and we stood on the U of M, and we just prayed for two days in May of 2017, four months before your church and ministry would start. And we were praying for this room. We didn't know Summit Church, we didn't know your name, but we were praying for this that God would do an incredible gospel movement on your campuses and in your cities, that people would go from death to life, that they would hear about Jesus and put their faith in him. People who were currently in junior high at the time 
that they would show up to a campus and they would encounter Christ, that they would surrender their life to him, be discipled, and be prepared to live for him the rest of their lives. And it has been incredible to see what God has done the last six years. The last six years, how that prayer was answered. I mean, it is a, a very cool thing to literally pray a prayer and then get to stand in a room and see that prayer answered. And you guys are an answer to that prayer that we've been praying for a decade. That prayer that we stood in your cities six years ago praying. It's been incredible to see what God has done and so exciting. So we love you guys. Like literally Natalie and I, we love you. I might not know your names. Like I know Ben, I just met him. But like that's it, you know, and Andrew, I met Andrew. Like he's cool. And, and I think Delaney and Amari walked in and th those guys were cool. That's it. Like I, that's, that's who I know. But I love you. Like literally, like we have so much love for you. Because we have gotten to see the hand of God work in your lives and in your ministry. It's been incredible. Now here's the other thing that we've been feeling though in the last six years. As we've been praising God for his work on your campuses and at the U of M and in your cities, we've also been simultaneously burdened. Because for the last six years, there's been six graduating classes from over 375 universities in our nation that don't have this. There's been six graduating classes from Minnesota State University that didn't have Salt Company, that didn't have a church intentionally engaging them with the gospel. And so while you showed up to your campus and there was a Salt Company student there to greet you, to share Jesus with you, those students showed up and that wasn't the case. And so while we're praising God for, for his work, we are actively praying that what God has started here in St. Paul and what God has started here in Minneapolis, that he would do again an hour and a half south in nine months. That as we start Salt Company here at Minnesota State, as we launch this church, that God would powerfully work through his spirit and through his gospel to change lives. That there would be students just like you who showed up to a campus disconnected from God and disconnected to his church that would actually hear the gospel and surrender their life to Christ. Guys, Jesus told us in Luke 10, 2, that the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. Guys, when you look around our nation, there is an abundant harvest. When you look around our world, there are billions of people that will be born, will live their entire life, and then die never once hearing the name of Jesus. There's an abundant harvest but tonight we want to talk about the second thing that he said, and that is that the laborers are few. You see, what Jesus tells us in Luke 10 is that there are more people ready to hear the gospel than there are ready to share it. That there's more people that God has been sovereignly working in their lives that if anyone just said the name of Jesus, that they would repent and believe. But there's a labor shortage. And so tonight I'm here to challenge you, will you live for something worth dying for? Will you live for something that has eternal weight? Will you forsake the temporary pursuits of your life and live for something that will matter for trillions and trillions and trillions of years for all eternity as we worship Jesus for the rest of eternity? Would you live and leverage your life for something great? And that is the name of Jesus glorified on every campus in every city and every city in our world. So tonight we want to look at this 1002 request. And to do it, I'm, we're actually going to look at Matthew's version. So Jesus says similar statement in Matthew 9. Matthew records it in Matthew 9. And we want to look and see what does it mean to live on mission for Jesus? 
How do we embrace this mission that Jesus is calling us to live on for him? And so what we're going to see in Matthew 9 is that if we're going to live on mission for Jesus, we need to see what he sees, and we need to respond how he calls. So what does Jesus see? Look at Matthew 9, starting in verse 35. It says this, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and every sickness. So we have Jesus. He's traveling around. He's doing ministry. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He's performing miracles, healing sick people. People are receiving sight. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of this, he stops. Look what it says in verse 36. When he saw the crowds... All of a sudden, this is a ministry day, a normal ministry day in the minds of the disciples, and then Jesus just stops in his tracks. Like, picture this in the disciples' eyes. They're like seeing incredible things. Jesus is preaching. Jesus is healing people. People are receiving sight. And then all of a sudden, he just stops, and he's looking at something. And as a disciple, you're kind of like wondering, like, man, what are you looking at? Like, you've had a friend that has stopped, and you can tell they're looking at something, and you're trying to figure out, like, what do you see that I don't see? Jesus stops and he sees what? He sees the crowds. And there's a difference between seeing the crowds and seeing the crowds. Jesus stopped and looked at the crowds. Like, have you ever been in a massive crowd? So I am from Iowa. I hear that the Minnesota State Fair is far superior than the Iowa State Fair. That's right. Okay. I I didn't know. I had a hunch that that might be true because... Like, Minnesota seems to be the greatest state in the world, and uh, that, I guess that's also right. Like, coming from an Iowan, that just makes logical sense. Like, all we have is corn, and, you know, that's it. Like, you guys are right. We're a terrible state. Like, you guys were right. Like, every joke about Iowa being terrible, you, you, you nailed it. You're like, you're right. Like, you got it. Our state fair averages half of your Minnesota state fair, so can't wait to experience a real state fair when we move up here. But have you ever been to the Minnesota state fair? And just seeing the crowds. I mean, actually, like, you don't just see them, but you see. Just see. Just stop and look. Have you ever seen crowds? This is what Jesus is doing. He's stopping, and he's just looking at the crowds. And what does he observe? What does Jesus see? 36. When he saw the crowds... He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees distressed, dejected, lost sheep. When he stops and sees crowds, that's what he sees. And what's his response? A deep compassion. This is not just like this superficial, like, oh, man, I feel sorry for him. No, this is like in his guts, just moved to the core of his being, a compassion, a burden for the crowds. Why? Because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. This is what Jesus sees. Let's think about these three words, distressed. When I hear distressed, what I think of is like a wounded animal. It's distressed. It's like bleating out for help. And it's like maybe surrounded by predators. It knows it's in this kind of dire state. It's distressed. It's no, it knows that its situation is terrible. Dejected. When I hear dejected, I think just hopeless. Just someone who's beaten down, 
who has no hope, who feels powerless to change anything about their circumstances, to, powerless to do anything to solve the problem that they're in, just hopeless, depressed, dejected, sheep without a shepherd. This is one of the most vulnerable places a sheep could be. A shepherdless sheep is a vulnerable sheep. A sheep needed a shepherd. If they didn't have a shepherd, they would like literally overgraze a pasture land and eat all of their food source away. A sheep, they needed a shepherd because without a shepherd, they wouldn't find clean water and they'd end up just drinking parasite-infested water. Like literally, this is kind of hilarious about sheep, but if sheep fall on their back, it's called a cast sheep. I'm from Iowa. I know a thing or two about sheep. It's cast. And a sheep literally cannot get up off its back and it bloats and then it dies. Like, that is how pitiful sheep are. Like, what a, what a loser animal. You know, like, cow? No, cows are great. Did you say a cow? Cows are fantastic. Or are you agreeing with me that sheep are lame? Wow, that's right. That is the right response. Wow, what a lame animal. Like, could you imagine if that was your mascot? Let's go sheep! Like, no one is a sheep. Is any, like, a ram is cool, but sheep? No, like, this is a vulnerable creature. A shepherdless sheep is in a vulnerable place. And here's what Jesus is seeing when he sees the crowds. He's seeing distressed, dejected, lost sheep. That's what Jesus sees. What do you see? What do you see when you look at crowds? Like, actually, like, think to yourself, when you're in the cities and there's a large crowd, what are you thinking? Is this what you're feeling? Is this what you're seeing? How many of us, myself included, actually don't feel these things? We feel indifference, annoyance, or judgment. Like that's what we see when we look at crowds. You're in my way. Or I don't even like look at you and don't even pay attention. I just am in my zone, AirPods in, I'm going. What do you see when you see crowds? Or do you see them at all? Jesus felt burden. You see, if you're going to embrace the mission of God for your life, if you're going to live for something eternal, it starts with a burden. It starts with a burden for lost people. That you actually agree with Jesus and see what he sees, that people are distressed, dejected, and like lost sheep in this world. Mission starts with burden. One of the most vivid pictures of lostness that we get in our Bible comes from 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings is an Old Testament uh, book, and in that book it records the story of a man named Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet of God, and he's on the run. There's a wicked king in Israel named Ahab, and Ahab has his prophets of Baal. Baal was a false god. So Elijah, the prophet of God, is on the run, and eventually they meet on this mountain called Mount Carmel. And on Mount Carmel, Elijah proposes this almost like competition between the prophets of Baal and the prophet of the or the God of the Bible. And he says, "Hey, listen, you 450 prophets of Baal, let's do this. Let's both make a sacrifice. Let's build an altar. Let's make a sacrifice. And whichever God rains fire down from heaven, that will be the test to know whose God is the real God." So he says, prophets of Baal, you go first. And all of Israel is watching. They want to find out, is Baal the real God or is Yahweh the real God? So they build these altars. The prophet of Baal, we are told, that for all day, 
They are raving and dancing and cutting themselves for bail. And then it says, but they get no answer. No one heard. No one paid attention. The story continues. Elijah, he builds his altar. He makes his sacrifice. He prays to God, and God rains down fire, and they realize that God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the true living God. And that's an incredible story of God's faithfulness, that God is real. He is who he says he is. He's powerful. He's near those who are lonely. It's, it's an incredible story, but it's also a very heartbreaking story. It's a heartbreaking story when you think about it from the lens of the prophets of Baal. Like, think about what it would have been like to be one of those prophets of Baals. Like, all day long, you are raving, dancing, and cutting for a lifeless God. You're raving, cutting, and dancing for a God who will not hear, who will not pay attention, who cannot listen. And then in the end, you're destroyed. It had been a horrible experience. Just like frantic and anxious and like all these things. It had been miserable. Here's the reality. We are surrounded by people who are raving, cutting, and dancing for lifeless gods. We're surrounded by people who are raving, cutting, and dancing for gods who cannot answer, who cannot pay attention, and who cannot listen. Does your heart break for them? Does your heart break for the girl who sits in front of the lifeless God of beauty every morning for two hours? Does your heart break for the guy who's in relationship after relationship, dancing, cutting, raving, hoping that this girl will fill the void of his heart? Does your heart break for the student on your campus who is dancing, cutting, and raving to the God of party and pleasure? Hoping that tonight when he goes out, he'll finally have joy. He'll finally have the friend group he's wanted only to wake up empty tomorrow. Does your heart break for the student who's raving, dancing, and cutting for the lifeless God of works-based religion. Who thinks he has to prove something to God in order for that God to love him. Does your heart break for the lost around us who are raving, cutting, and dancing for gods who offer false promises but who cannot hear, cannot listen, cannot pay attention? Does your heart break for them? Is that what you see when you see crowds? Or is it annoyance, indifference, and judgment? See, here's the reality. We believe that when you die, there's one of two options. Either you know Jesus and you enter into an eternity with him, or you don't know Jesus and you enter into an eternity in hell. Are you burdened for that? Have you wrestled with that reality? We also believe that hell doesn't just start when you die, but if you are lost, hell is now as you're raving, dancing, and cutting for gods who don't answer and don't hear and can't pay attention? Are you burdened for the lost? Are you burdened for their misery? Their misery now and their misery eternity. Are you burdened? What do you see when you see the crowds? Now for some of you tonight, before we talk about you sharing your faith, you need a faith. Before we talk about you sharing Jesus, you need to receive Jesus. 
And you are actually someone who is raving, cutting, and dancing before lifeless gods. You're like a lost sheep drinking in the parasite-infested waters of sin, hoping they'll satisfy. Here's what I want you to know. Jesus sees you. Jesus knows you. Jesus has seen, he stopped, he's looking at you. And he is moved with compassion for you. So much so that he left heaven 2,000 years ago, took on the form of a man, and died on a cross for you. So that you could have a relationship with him. So that instead of dancing, cutting, and raving before a lifeless God, you can have freedom, grace, and healing in his arms. That's what he's offering you. Will you receive Jesus? If you're going to live on mission for Jesus, it starts with burden. It starts with seeing what he sees. But this isn't the only thing that Jesus saw that day. Look at verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is abundant, but the workers are few. You see, the first thing Jesus saw was the reality of lostness. The second thing he saw was the reality of a labor shortage. That there were more people ready to hear and respond to the gospel than there were to share. He saw the crowds. He saw them and was burdened for them. And the thing that then burdened him again was the reality that there weren't laborers to go and share with them about the hope of Jesus. There is a harvest that is abundant, but the workers are few. That God has actually sovereignly prepared people all around us who if we just opened our mouth, they would respond in faith to Jesus. We're not short on those people. What we're short on is people who are willing to step out in boldness and share their faith. We're short on people who are willing to move their feet and go places where the gospel hasn't gone. There is no lack in people who need to hear the gospel. There's just a lack in people who will share the gospel. This is what Jesus saw, and it burdened him. If you're going to live on mission, you need to be burdened. You need to see what Jesus sees. Do you see the lostness, and do you see the labor shortage? That's what Jesus saw. If that's where mission starts, then how do we respond how does Jesus call to respond? When we begin to see what he sees, how should we respond? Look at the verse 38. Here's what he tells us. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, this is surprising, right? Because you would think if he sees a bunch of people and he says there's not enough people to go share with them, you would expect the very first thing for him to say is go share. But what's the first thing he says? Pray. Pray, get on your knees and cry out to the Lord for their salvation and for God to raise people up to go to them. Pray. You see, burden for the lost, burden for the reality of the labor shortage moves us in dependence on God in prayer. When I was in Salt Company as a student, I had the chance to go overseas to a country in Southeast Asia and spend two months there. It changed my life. Every single one of you should go overseas when you're in college. And so one of the things that we did on this trip is we had the chance, we were in a city of 9 million people, and we had a chance to go to the next closest city. One of our friends was taking us there. So we get on this train, and it's about a three-hour train ride to the next closest city, and he prepared us. He's like, hey, we're going to see some villages on the way. Now, we're in the foothills of the Himalayas, so you can't really see between, like, our city of 9 million and this next, the next city. So we get on this train, and I'm just expecting, like, countryside. You know, like I'm from Iowa, I'm expecting like their version of corn, which I think is rice. So, uh, you know, that's what I'm expecting. 
So we get out of this city of nine million, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna take a nap because we'll be at the next city in three hours. And we get around the very first mountain bend. And my friend goes, oh, we're about to pass the first village. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear village, but I had like mud hut in my mind. Like, that's what I'm thinking. Like, I'm just like this white kid from Iowa that like is a, grew up in a farm community. I'm thinking like mud hut, like that makes sense when I hear village. That is not what it was. We come around the corner and the village that we saw was a town the size of Rochester, Minnesota. Like 100,000 people. I'm like, oh, is that like the city we're going to? Like, was it not three hours? Was it actually a half hour? Was there a language barrier thing here? And he's like, no, that's a village. I'm like, what? And then we go around the next mountain bend. And there's St. Cloud. And then we go around the next mountain bend. There's Duluth. And then we go around the next mountain bend. There's Mankato. And for the next three hours, every 15 minutes, we passed a community of 100,000 people that they called a village. And about an hour into this train ride, we began to pass like kind of agricultural area. And there were farmers so close to the train tracks that I literally made eye contact with one of them and looked into their eyes. And when I did that, I'll never forget what I thought. I thought that is a person who know, like knowing what is true of this country, almost 100% chance that that is a person that has never heard the name of Jesus. And they're in the middle of nowhere in the foothills of the Himalayas. That is a person who's never heard the name of Jesus. They will be born, they will live their whole life, and they will die never hearing the name of Jesus. And I'm passing village, city after city of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who would never hear the name of Jesus. I knew every missionary that was in that region, and I knew they'd never been to these villages. I knew that there was no, like almost 100% that there was no chance that those people had ever heard. And then I began looking around on the train that I was on. And I thought, this is more than likely the closest that these people on this train will ever be to a Christian. And I just began to sob. Like on this train, I just start crying and crying and crying. And like everything in me wanted to stand up and shout, Jesus. But I didn't even speak the language. I was like, that's not going to work. Like they're going to think I'm a crazy. Like I just felt so helpless. I was so aware of my complete inability to do anything to help these people hear about Jesus. And so I just cried. And then eventually my crying turned to the only thing I could do, which was pray. I just began praying and praying and praying. And as I prayed, God reminded me of something. He said, Stephen, I am the Lord of the harvest. This is my harvest. I own this. If I wanted to, I have the power to snap my finger and every person in this country would open their eyes to Jesus. That's in my power. Do you trust me that I'm sovereign enough, good enough, in control enough, powerful enough that I have a plan for this country, for these people that is beyond your comprehension? All I'm asking you to do is pray, is to be faithful where I'm sending you. Here's the reality. What I felt on that train is the same inability that you have on your campus. We just don't see it. 
You know, we think like, man, I can speak this language. I can share the gospel with my friends. I can talk about spiritual things. Maybe I like get them to a a salt service and then maybe they'll put their faith in Jesus. Get them to a fall retreat. Like that changed my life. Maybe we'll change. We don't comprehend the reality of how incapable we are of seeing people go from death to life. But if we were aware of the complete miracle it is when someone puts their faith in Christ, we would drop to our knees in dependence. Lord, there's not a single person who can come to faith in you unless your spirit works in their life. This is the first response, to pray. To pray that God would raise up laborers for an abundant harvest. But that's not the only response. Because what I found is so often the ones who pray the 1002 prayer the most often are also the ones that God ends up sending into the harvest. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. He summons his 12 disciples together. And then in verse 5, it says that Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Jesus tells these disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would raise up laborers. And then turns around and says, and you're the laborers. Go. I'm sending you. The ones who most often pray this prayer end up being the ones who go. Jesus is sending us out into a harvest that is abundant. Independent action, dependence of prayer, but taking action to actually go. And here's the question for you tonight. Will you respond how Jesus is calling you? Will you respond in obedience to where he's sending you? Because he is sending you somewhere. Tonight, he's sending you back to a dorm room with someone who's distressed, dejected, and like a lost sheep. Tomorrow, he's sending you back into classrooms with people who are lost. Jesus is sending you. Do you have the eyes to see what he sees? And then will you walk in obedience and respond to how he calls? Jesus is sending you. So I want to walk through just five very simple practical steps of what it looks like to live on mission. Just five real practical things. The first, I've talked about it a bunch, but pray. Like literally pray. Like a lot of us around here set our alarms to 1002 so that daily we're praying this prayer that God would raise up labors for an abundant harvest. It's one of the most practical things that you could do. Pray. Second, invest. Invest in friendship with non-believers around you. Like get into intramural teams. Get, invest in the relationships with people around you. Invite them to watch games with you. Invite them to go out to eat. Like invest in those relationships. Third, pr- share. At some point in that friendship, step out in boldness and share your faith. Start with just your story, how Jesus changed your life. Just say, hey, man, can I just tell you something? Jesus changed my life. Here's how. And then he might just say, cool. And then it's like, great. Well, I'm glad we shared that. And if you ever want to talk, like, let's talk again. But share. Learn how to share your faith. If you don't know how, ask your connection group leader. Take Gospel to One this year. Learn some tools on how to communicate your faith in a compelling way. Fourth, go overseas. I am not lying. The thing that changed my life and Natalie's life in college was going overseas. It was one of the the best decisions that we ever made in our time in college. Because there is nothing that opens your eyes to the reality of lostness like spending two months in a country where the majority of people have never once heard the name of Jesus. Like, I'll never forget those moments where I'm sitting across a table eating a meal with someone and I share the gospel with them. That there's a God, that we're sinful before him, that Jesus died for our sins, and that through faith they could have a relationship with him. And they say, I have never heard that. It changed my life. Go overseas this 
this summer. Lastly, go on a church plant. One of the ways that you could have the greatest missional impact in a community is to help a church get started there. You see, in 2012, my life was changed because there was a church in Ames, Iowa. And I think you would say that Salt Company has significantly impacted your faith. Some of you would say, this is actually the ministry where I chose to follow Jesus. Would you, as someone who's been blessed by the gospel, go and be a blessing? Would you love the person you once were, the freshman who was disconnected from God and his church, and go and help a church and a salt company get started at one of those campuses? Saying yes to Jesus is always worth it. And some of you will say yes to Jesus, and he will say, sweet, I'm going to send you right back into a couple of cities with three million people, and I want you to be salt and light in that community. And you won't move. But praise God, he's going to use you here. And some of you are going to say yes to Jesus. He's going to say, sweet, I'm going to send you over to Europe, where the majority of places in Europe are less than 1% Christian. And I want you to be salt and light there. Some of you will say yes to Jesus, and he'll say, sweet, I'm going to send you to Asia, where the gospel is exploding, but there's so much more kingdom-building work to be done. Some of you will say yes to Jesus. He'll say, sweet, I'm going to send you an hour and a half south to a place called Mankato. And you're going to help a gospel witness be established in that community. And guys, we don't just have a burden for Mankato. We have a burden for our region. Do you realize that there are over a dozen campuses within a four-hour radius of the cities? Places like St. Cloud and Duluth and Winona State and La Crosse and Oshkosh. Eau Claire, Whitewater, Northern Illinois, North Dakota State, North Dakota, South Dakota, South Dakota State, Marshall, Minnesota, Southwest Minnesota. Let's go. Mustangs, am I right? Man, Huskies. Thank you, bro. Southwest Minnesota State, Huskies. Guys, there are so many campuses. There are so many campuses where there is hardly anyone doing gospel work at. Now, I'm really thankful. We've met some great churches, and I've met some great pastors in Mankato. Like, there are some awesome partners in the gospel that have been faithfully laboring in that community. But one of them told me that out of 20,000 students in Mankato, only 175 are a part of a church or ministry. They don't have this. And here's that ask. Would you make an intentional gospel decision as you graduate college? Would you say, I'm uncomfortable with the reality of lostness? This doesn't sit well with me, so I'm going to step out in faith and actually say yes to Jesus. I don't know where he'll send you, but I know saying yes to him is always worth it. Why? Why do we live this way? Well, because there was once a time when you were distressed and dejected like a sheep without a shepherd. There was once a time when you had the wound of sin, when you had the hopelessness of brokenness where you were drinking out of the parasite-infested waters of sin, hoping they would satisfy. And someone looked down from heaven and saw you. He saw you. And he didn't just see you, but he responded to the call of his father. And he said, I'm going to cross heaven to earth. I'm going to take on the form of a man. I'm going to live the perfect life that they can't live. I'm going to exchange places with them on a wooden cross on Calvary, the place that they should have been because of their sin. But I'm going to rise victoriously with salvation in my hand so that they can have healing, 
so that they can have grace, so that they can have forgiveness, so that they can have life in me. Jesus saw you. Jesus died for you so that you can have a relationship with God that can never be threatened. We have been blessed. Would we now turn and be a blessing? I said in in college in 2012, my life was changed because of a church plant. Cornerstone Church in Ames was a church plant, started in 1994, and had that church and that saw company not been there, Natalie and I have said numerous times, we have literally no idea where we would be. Like, our lives were so transformed through the work of that ministry that we literally don't know where we would be today had it not been for that church plant. But my story wasn't just impacted from a church plant in 2012, but also a church plant 74 years ago. You see, my great-grandfather was Gordon Jones. His wife was Lois. They had three teenage kids. They were in their 40s, and the Jones family was godless. We had a reputation of godlessness. Gordon, my great-grandfather, his dad, my great-great-grandfather, was a vile, wicked alcoholic. He survived a Civil War POW camp just to come home and get drunk at a bar, fall off his horse and almost freeze to death, only to catch pneumonia and die two weeks later. That was the reputation and the legacy of Joneses. And then in his 40s, Gordon Jones had three teenage kids and a wife and was in the same spot. Until one day, a man named Brother Sam came and knocked on his door. Brother Sam is the guy standing there in the green long sleeve shirt. Brother Sam knocks on Gordon's door and says, hey, we just moved to Marable Hill Road, and a group of us are going to start a church. And we're interested, like, you want to come to our first small group gathering tonight and, and open the Bible with us. So Gordon and Lois, my great-grandparents, they said yes. And they began going to this small group and this Bible study. And after a few months, Brother Sam led my great-grandfather, Gordon, to Christ. Shortly after, my great-grandmother, Lois, put her faith in Christ. And then my grandfather and his two siblings put their faith in Christ. And then that small group became Marable Hill Chapel, the same church where my grandparents were married by Brother Sam. My grandma's funeral was there, officiated by Brother Sam. 74 years ago, Brother Sam knocked on Gordon Jones's door, and our family was changed for generations. And I have two prayers. The first prayer is that 74 years from now, there would be a great-great-granddaughter who would say, my grandma went to a ministry in St. Paul. After a legacy of godlessness, she came here and our family's legacy was changed forever. It was changed from godlessness to following the Lord. And 74 years from now, you would have a great, great granddaughter who would say, I wouldn't be here had my grandma not been there. Had my God not changed her life when she was a part of a ministry called Salt Company. Here's my second prayer, that there would be great, great grandsons who would say, had it not been for a group of people who decided to move to Mankato, Minnesota, I would be lost. That they knocked on my great grandfather's door and that was the moment our family was impacted, not just for one generation, but for generation after generation as a family who follows the Lord. Will you decide to live on mission for Jesus? Will you decide to say yes to him? 
Will you open your eyes to the burden and the reality of lostness around you? And will you respond how Jesus is calling you to respond? The, the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers. Let's pray. Jesus, that is our prayer tonight. Jesus, we've been praying it for this city for over a decade. We've been praying it since May 2017 that you would do what we are seeing right now. That these students would be going from death to life. That Jesus would be changing people in this room. And God, we're praising you that you have done it and you are going to continue to do it. And God, now we're asking, would you do it again? Would you do it again in this state? Would you do it again in this region? Would you do it again across this country? Would you do it again across our world? God, would you open our eyes to the reality of lostness? Would our hearts be burdened with the same compassion that Jesus felt when he saw people distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd? God, would we cry out to you every day, Lord, the harvest is abundant. So raise up more laborers. And God, as we pray that, would you help us by your spirit to walk in obedience, to be faithful where you're sending us. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen.